like I said, if I don't feel like doing a whole hour, I can do whatever I like. So that gives me a bit of freedom. And what I'll do it, I'll just do it the way it, a lot of people do, you know, what I was like growing up and, you know, when I took my first drink, how it changed me. And and then when I stopped drinking, the, the, the journey in sobriety, it sort of, it makes it easy then. So I've only got one story anyway, so I can't change it. Um, I have a little photograph of myself when I was about six years old. And I look at it with compassion sometimes, sort of very, very calm and serene, but I was very uncomfortable, I know, as a kid. I was so uncomfortable as a kid when I was four years old, I went to school and it was a child's school and there was a big thing like a staircase that would take about seven or eight children wide. It was, we called it the gallery. And because I was the youngest in the school, I was only four years old. I was put up at the top, the top step of the gallery. And I didn't know how to ask to go to the toilet. And I had short trousers on me. And I remember doing my piss and seeing it going down on the on the on the steps and flowing down. I was I was petrified with fear, really. But of course, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. And um, and I was like that for a long time. I was just constitutionally afraid of life and people, and I love to be by myself and. I'd love to be, you know, walking by myself. Even as a kid, I wanted to be alone, looking at plants. Somebody was talking about plants and flowers earlier on. So I was always attracted to nature. And then when 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 things like would come up, like when I was seven in, in Ireland, um, I, I was born and raised in Ireland on the East Coast. Religious stuff came up at seven where you had to get dressed up and um, you had to make a list of all the sins that you had committed and and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't want to do that. I, I think I was the only kid in the school that didn't want to do it because everybody else was excited by it. And it's, I'm a bit like that nowadays if there's a concert. I don't want to go to a concert where there's loads of people. But we have these festivals in Ireland of music. And I love music, but I can't be in a place with loads of people. I want to be alone. So I was like that when I was a kid too. And it wasn't that I didn't, I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know enough at that stage to be able to hate the idea of somebody up in the sky. But I knew I just didn't want to be long. I was an outsider. And um, the, that photograph that was taken was that day when I was making the, that religious thing. And I, I remember feeling I, I didn't want to be there, but I didn't know how to. I didn't have any sort of moral compass to be able to say what I, what I wanted or what I didn't want. And that happened again when I was 12 years old. There was another religious thing. And, and it, it entailed a bishop coming and a bishop had to answer, ask you a question. And we were told about this question and we had to go through a whole book and get the answers, you know. And I still remember to this day that the question that, that I was asked, I was so terrified to get it wrong. I was so terrified that I lost control of my bowels in the church and I had to get up in front of everybody and, and, and walk out, everybody looking at me, of course. And I had to go out in the railway tracks and relieve myself. I was terrified, you know. So I knew I was a bit different. And um, it was like that all the time in school as well. I was a good kid in school and I learned stuff. I was bright and found school easy, but I I found interaction with people very difficult. And and I, I always had this thing where one time um, I was trying to be a good boy at home. My, my dad had a garden and I, I remember saying to him one day, will I water the garden? And he shouted at me. Well, I felt he shouted at me. He said, what do you want to water, water the garden for today? It's been raining for days. 
and I'll never forget how I felt when I get criticized in the wrong. Like I had no, I hadn't, I hadn't remembered it was raining. I was just trying to help. And I felt like I was wrongly judged. And that would, I don't know whether that set it up or not, but when something like that happened to me, my spirit would drop. And I'd want to get off the world. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't show it. I wouldn't tell it. I'd internalize it. And I'd feel wounded and hurt and nobody understands me. And, and, and the fact that I remember that moment, it was, it, it was um, a big thing in my life. And I still have that sort of thing. If I get criticized, even as a, an adult, you know, I, 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 my spirit drops. Especially if I've been trying, trying my best to do something um, in a positive way. So that sort of stuff caused me trouble in school. Um, I tried to help a teacher once that was that was wasn't doing very well at the blackboard, and he saw that he saw that I was I was trying to be one up on him, and I wasn't. I was just trying to. I knew he was having trouble working something out in maths, and he had a he had a thing against me after that. He felt, I think he felt I was showing him up in front of the class, and that wasn't my motive. I was just trying to give him a hand, really. But anyway, to cut the long story short, I I was I I, I was thrown out of that school because. I would I refused to go on the religious stuff. I was starting to I was 16 or 17 at the time. And I was starting to feel like, well, I can make decisions for myself and I'm not going to be bullied. So I got the courage to say, no, I'm not going to go on that religious retreat. I don't really believe in that stuff. It's just more more of the same stuff. It was all sex sexual, you know. They bring you away for two or three days and it's all about sex and masturbation and sins and going to confession and get the priest to absolve you. And, and I thought, at that stage, I thought it was all bullshit. I, and I um, I didn't go and I, I got thrown out because of that anyway. But anyway, I the rebel kicked in me then. I decided I'd just go ahead and um, get all the books and educate myself. And I applied to the government to, to pass exams. And I managed to do that and got into university. <clears throat> and... Um, I didn't mention that when I was growing up, I was very aware of alcohol. I remember once being in a pub with my dad. It was in a small village north of County Dublin called Malahide. And it was a sort of a um, country place at the time. And there was a pub we were in and there was sawdust on the floor. It was only men. Women weren't allowed into the pubs. But I was in there with my dad. There was sawdust on the floor and they were talking about um, wildlife and uh, shooting ducks and catching rabbits and badgers and and I thought it was wonderful. And when I was at home, it was all about uh, get down on your knees and say the rosary, blessed virgins and priests. And and I found that sort of stuff boring, but I loved the idea of the, the, the wildlife in the pub. So I was sort of attracted to the pub, even if it wasn't that to do with drink, as I hadn't drank at that stage. But I also knew that people changed when they drank. I was an observant little boy at the time. I'd seen people go go into a pub, you know, one way and come out a different way. And I knew I knew there was magic in, in alcohol. But I also knew that it was dangerous because my mother was always she I'd say she was an untreated um uh, child of an alcoholic father. And she was terribly an anti-drink, never drank, and she used to say there was a devil, the devil was in every bottle of stout. So I was getting that message as well. So I had conflicted ideas of this magic substance. And um, I didn't drink for a couple of a couple of years in college until I, one time I went off to one of the, the islands off, um, it's an English island off the coast of France called the, Jer the, the Channel Islands, Jersey. And I was working there during the summer to get my fees for university. And when I came back and paid the fees, I had, I had some money left over. 
and something clicked in my head that I was going to have try to try drinking. And I remember specifically saying to somebody, I can't remember who, who it was, I said to them, what would be a good thing to start on? I knew it was an adventure. And they advised me to try Bacardi and Lime as a, a nice, easy drink to start on. Like I was an apprentice. And I had three Bacardis and Lime that night. And I was with my brother's wife in a car driving a, a little old Morris Minor. And I nearly, nearly drove into the sea after having the three drinks. I was going too fast. I, I had lost control of myself, really. I hadn't learned how to realise I, I had drink st magic stuff in my veins and that I had to sort of compensate for it. And I, I, anyway, I didn't go into the sea. I managed to get, get her safely home. And um, I, I knocked on a window that night trying to attract a, a girl's attention that was inside at a dance. It was a dance I couldn't go to because it was a Protestant dance and I was a Catholic. And our village, our village was divided. We never mixed with the others and they never mixed with us. But I knocked too hard and I broke the window. Totally by mistake. I didn't mean to. And um, I was chased that night. And being fleet of foot, I wasn't caught. But I slept out. I slept in the car that night. So that was my first night's drinking. And nothing in me thought that that was, um, that drink was bad. They were all just things that happened. And I couldn't wait to drink again because something in me Knew, knew it was a magic feeling. And I often, I identify with people who talk about the first drink as being something that was really, really attractive. I heard it described as magic dust being peppered in your brain cells or, you know, opening up the doors of perception. You, you see the world differently. And that definitely worked. That was the way it worked with me. Following weekend, I drank again and I, I drank three pints of Guinness and I got sick. That was my first time to realise that you know, you have to practice it to keep, help help to keep it down. You know, you're taking this stuff into your body and your body knows it's not good for you, but your head wants it. So I, I learned how to keep it down. And within a short time anyway, I was drinking like everybody else and getting into trouble. And I went from being a very shy, um, you know, solitudinous person to be the center of the party. I was a clown. I was a pub clown. Um, I could have been crying inside, but I'd be looking for attention. And I nearly, I, you know, I did strange, wild things. Uh, I uh, driving motorbikes drunk and getting chased by police and used to climb, I used to climb up things and I'd jump into water and swim long distances, you know, just, and I'd be drunk at the time. And so it gave me this sort of uh, false courage and uh, I, don't, I could have I could have died really and anyway to cut the long story short I, I got married young and the woman sort of asked me to marry her really and I said yes because we wanted to have sex and you couldn't have sex in Ireland in, in the in the 60s without being married it was totally totally sinful altogether very restrictive and uh, no regrets I have two I, I, one of my little babies has just gone now. He was with me today. He's 50, 56. So no regrets that I had two, I had two children for that marriage. But I remember the day we got married. The day I got married was terrible because I was in a church and I didn't want to be there. I'd given in. I'd, I've, I, I committed what I call nowadays an act of spiritual suicide by going ahead with that. I did it because somebody else wanted me to do it. And, I, and everything in me didn't want to go through with the marriage. I just wanted to have a, a woman in my life and we were getting on okay together. 
but there was all conditions put on it. So uh, I, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't honest really. It was a, it was a big, uh, a big dishonest act for me. And but anyway, that that marriage lasted until I got sober. And all the time, you know, I went to England for my first job, and I got my first paycheck. And of course, England is a barbaric country because they close the pubs in the daytime, and uh, so I used to have to go to an off license and get a bottle of sherry when I finish work, and I go home and try to be a father to two children while I drank the sherry, and then when they were in bed, I'd go out and have a few drinks at night time, and I didn't see really see anything wrong with that, but I. My drinking was getting more and more, more and more heavy, and I was getting, I was getting more and more um, disillusioned with life as well. I, I, I suppose I, I, I would, I could say that I was spiritually getting unwell because my head and my arse went in the same place. I was in a marriage; I wanted to be out of it. I was, I was in a job; I was working in the civil service; I wanted to be out of that too. And the only thing I could do was drink, and that made me feel okay temporarily a day at a time. If I kept a drink, kept if I could drink a day at a time, everything was okay. And then, all of a sudden, then one day I decided that I, I had enough of the the job, and I it was it was a good job. It was a civil service, and I decided I'd give it up, and I um, went out on the oil rigs in the North Sea, and that was the first time there was no drink on the oil rigs, and I remember going out in a helicopter and getting into the bunk. And that night, the first night, I hadn't drank that day. And the first night I um, woke up in a pool of sweat. And um, I heard the engines on the rig. I didn't know where I was. Um, and I and I suddenly realized that I was withdrawn from the alcohol. That was the first time I, I recognized withdrawal symptoms. And then the next thing came into my head. I said, oh, that's all that is. That's fine. That might happen. And then I started thinking about how how long would I have to be out here before I go back and get more drink? Three weeks, four weeks sometimes. And I'd never go home straight to see the kids. I would um, go to the pub first and get myself all relaxed again. And um, I wouldn't, I, I knew all about drink. I knew how to make it and distill it. I was a sort of chem, was a scientist. I knew all about it, but I didn't know it was, it was eroding, eroding my spirit. Um, I came back to Ireland, I got a job, I got a call, there was no mobile phones at the time, I got a call, a radio call, and the rig offered me a job in Galway, teaching in, in a university, and I said yes, I'd take it, and came back to Galway, and, and that's where I really started drinking heavy, because Ireland, especially Galway, was a, one of the lads from the offshore island said, when he, he came to Galway, he said, Galway's a big pub, because everything, pubs were open all the time, even in the middle, middle of the night, you'd go and get drink, there were parties, and music and everything so I got to a state there that's all I can say where I was I was teaching in, in a university I would go in in the morning and I'd be terrified I was I was sort of terrified coming in here tonight to talk in front of alcoholics but I used to be terrified going into the college because I'd have all these students sitting down in front of me and I'd start panicking that I wouldn't be able to tell them anything all I wanted to do was get out to have a, to have a drink to calm my nerves and I'd only have to stay there from nine o'clock to ten o'clock in front of those kids. That was my day's work, really. And it was just a huge, huge thing. I was almost panicking. I heard people talking about panic, panic attacks, and I don't never thought I had them, but I really had panic attacks there, standing in front of those kids, um, terrified. 
but trying to keep trying to keep a keep a straight face. And when that te- when ten o'clock came up, then I'd be so relaxed. I'd have three three large gins, and uh, I'd all, be all relaxed. And then I would say, "Sure, it wasn't that bad." And that went on until it stopped, and it got worse. And I got to a stage where I just could, I knew I couldn't do it anymore, and I I really thought about killing myself. And I I, I had a nice old car, a Jaguar, and I had the place put, 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 picked out that I could get a good speed up and go off it, go off the end of a pier and kill myself. And I left the job, another good job. And um, I told my, I just told him the truth. I told him I can't do it anymore. And they told me to take some time off. They wouldn't accept my resignation. They said, take some time off and go and see a psychiatrist and maybe have a chat with him because they didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or anything. So I went and there was a psych- psychiatrist I knew, I knew where his house was. And I, I was really, I was really crazy that time. I didn't know it in a in a quiet way. But I went up to his house without making an appointment. It was his private house. Knocked the door. There was no answer. And in Ireland, sort of, you can go into people's houses, sort of. You used to be able, anyway. They wouldn't shoot you there like they would in America. But anyway, I went into his house, and uh, there was nobody in a, in a big hallway. There's a fairly fairly posh house now. But I saw a door and there was somebody talking in the door and I went in the door and he was in the door and looking back on us, he probably had a patient with him. And I and he was shocked to see me. And he said, who are you and what do you want? I said, I was suggested to see see a psychiatrist. So I came to see you. And he said to me, you're, 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 you're a very sick man. He said, if you ever get sober, come and see me. So that was my brush with psychi- psychiatric medicine. And I was sort of relieved that the in my head now the psychiatrist can't help me, so that's as, that's as crazy how crazy I was that time. And I I met a guy after leaving his house, and this guy said, "How is it? How is how is it going?" And I told him the truth. I I said it's not going very well. And I'm, I'm the master of the understatement, you know. And he said, "Come along with me and meet my dad. He knows something about it." And I went and met his dad, and his dad was. Um, Sean, he was a medical doctor, but he was also, he told me he was 10 years sober. And um, he started talking to me and something happened that, that night that I realized that was the first time I talked to somebody who wasn't talking down to me, who wasn't shaking fingers at me and saying, go back to your wife and kids and you're bad. And he just shared, shared his own experience. And he talked about, he talked about blackouts being the death of brain cells. And when they died, they don't re- they don't recover and he talked about the progressive nature of alcohol and I could see that when he said that it got worse gradually got worse to the point where I wanted to kill myself and um, I left him that night after about an hour or so walked home a couple of miles home because I ran out of the cars and everything and I decided to go back and see him and I did that a couple of days afterwards and one of the most impressive things he did was he took out a little a book out of his pocket that size, size of a phone. And he opened the book up and he had loads of names in it and, num- and numbers in it. Now, I didn't even have a phone, but he had people's names and numbers and he made a call and another guy came and they told me they were members of Alcarce Anonymous and they were going to a meeting in a place called Tume, which is about 20 miles north of Galway City. And he asked me, would I like to come with them? And of course, I told a lie. I said, I would like to go with them and that was the last place I wanted to go. But he, they were so nice to me, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. 
and um, I went there that night. And I remember, remember, Rita was there at that meeting that night. Donald's partner, and um, and I to cut that long story short, I went to meetings. The second thing that impressed me was, um, during the week they brought me to the various meetings in around Galway City to show me where they were. But on one of the excursions to a meeting, they, there was a crash. Sean was driving the car and another car crashed into him. It was only a minor, minor crash in the city. But Sean got out and said he was very sorry. It was all my fault. And here are all my, here are my particulars. And I was really impressed with that because the people I hung around with, that wouldn't have happened. There'd be an argument and the shouting and roaring and telling lies. And so that I never forget that. But anyway, they dropped me then and told me to go to meetings by myself. And I went around all the meetings and I identified with the stories, but I didn't identify with a lot, everybody because especially people who were, you know, came to Alcoholics Anonymous and said, UP, I've come home. I, I, I feel like I'm a, I've come home to, this is my family and all that. And I didn't want to be there at all. I wanted the party to go on. I really wanted to drink again. But I knew I couldn't. And when people said they were in rehabs, well, I was never in a rehab. So maybe I'm not that sort of an alcoholic. There were people who said they were chronic alcoholics. And I, I said, well, I can give up drink for two months on the oil rigs. Or, or I think I think once, three months by myself. So maybe I'm not as bad as them. But I didn't realize what I was doing. I was picking up all the differences between me and them. And when I, when I had enough of those in my back pocket, I thought I was going to a meeting one night. And instead... The fucking switch went off in my head. And I went into a pub and I was drinking again. And uh, I drank for five days. I remember that those five days. The lad that was with me there, my son of 56, so he was only a baby at the time and I was holding him during that five, that five days and I broke my foot. I twisted my ankle and broke my foot. because I was too drunk to hold him. And at the end of the five days, I, I was beaten and what was going around in my head during those five days was the bit in the 12 by 12 that says once one alcoholic puts into the mind of another the true nature of his malady, his drinking can never be the same again. So I didn't get any buzz during those five days. It didn't work anymore. And I ended up in a pub in Ballybohan in a little town not far from where I live down the west coast of Ireland looking at a half pint of Guinness and I had money in my pocket. And I just said to the said to the drink, "You win. I did, the war is over. I I have to I have to surrender." And so at that moment, I had surrender of depth. I ended up in another pub that night because I knew the man who was in the pub had been in a rehab, and I told him the story, and he was going to drive me to Dublin the next morning and book me into a rehab. And I went to bed in the pub that night upstairs and just drank orange juice to try and wash the alcohol out of my system. And about four o'clock in the morning, I woke bright, bright with the with the um, terrible commitment I had made. And I ran out of the house before anybody could find me. So I didn't want to go to hospital. I, and I, I walked about four miles on one foot and, and my heel because my, my toes were broken. And um, that was the moment I... I I was picked up by a, another friend of mine. He was an, also a doctor and uh, he, he saw I was in a bit of a state. I was, I was shaken and I was dry, dry retching and um, terrified to pay, pass a cow on the road. 
I just couldn't pass the cow. I had to climb a wall and go into a field just to get past the cow. I couldn't pass him on the road. I felt he was going to attack me. But he brought he brought me home and he told me to... The only time I, I took another drug in my life, really, was that morning. He told me to get a bottle of Benelin expectorant and to drink the whole bottle and go to bed. And I was like, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd do anything somebody would suggest at that stage. And I drank that. That's the only time I took a drug in my life. And uh, I had the most hard, horrific withdrawals. I don't know whether it was because of the, the Benelin or the drink, but I struggled back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the third part of the story started there. That was the 1st of May, 1978. I haven't had a drink or a mind-altering chemical a day at a time since then. And my sober story was sort of difficult because I had to grow up. I was... Um, I was, I was happy being a victim. I was happy being a reactor. I was happy, happy pointing the finger at what was wrong in everything in life. But when people say, say to me, you know, you can, you can be the author of your own destiny, I was really lost. And I saw the 12 steps on the wall and I felt, I saw they were just another, we were brought up with 10 commandments in the Catholic, Catholic religion. And I thought that was just another sneaky way of putting commandments up that you look after. And I felt threatened by them. And it took me a long time to realize that they, for me, they could be looked on in a different way. Someone said to me very simple things, like there was an old guy coming to the meetings, he used to say it too. Every day I'm going to a meeting, I go to a meeting, I'm doing the first step. Every time I go to a meeting, I'm doing a second step because I'm looking for a power outside myself to help me by listening to other people. And every time I go to a meeting, I'm doing a third step. I'm sort of handing my life over to the possibility that some power might come in from outside from talking to other people that I don't have by myself because my head goes into a tunnel vision and I think there's only one way and I get myself into a, a mental, mental messes with that. But when I speak to another alcoholic, the magic bit happens. An idea comes from the side that I wouldn't be capable of thinking for myself because my mind is so focused, you know, on other stuff. So and then and then eventually, you know, I was nearly a year sober before the pub started to move back off the path. I was obsessed with the idea that somehow, somewhere, in some other country, um, I might be able to drink again. I was thinking of starting a business, and I, I asked an old guy that again, Donald would know Sid. I asked Sid's advice. If I stayed in the job that I was in, because I was, I went back to the job and they welcomed me back. Um, if I drank again, they'd look after me. But if I started a business on my own and I drank again, my poor kids might not be able to eat, you know. So I asked Sid what he thought, should I start a business or not? And he just smiled at me. He didn't tell me one way or the other. Because I just knew at that stage, looking back on it, I didn't really believe that I could stay sober under all and every circumstance. I thought some, somewhere, somehow, something might make me drink again. But I, what happened was I just kept coming to meetings, and that's the thing that saved me. Somewhere in the early days, somebody said, you know, this is about unconditional sobriety. No matter what happens, if they say in the States, if your arse falls off, you don't drink. Or the, the guy used to say, if you make love to the woman next door, you don't drink. If, if the man next door makes love to your wife, you don't drink. And if you make love to the postman, you don't drink. And that was the unconditional sobriety that was talked about. 
And the other thing was people talked about contented sobriety. I thought that that would mean that if you did all these so-called steps, that you'd become, you'd come into a, some sort of a nirvana state where every day would be fine. But I had to realize that contented sobriety is to be glad to be sober no matter what's going on. And, and that was another key to me, to know that there's no, there's no emotional sobriety. There's no, for me, no, I'm only for myself. There's no time where I'll be cured or won't have the same feelings I had as a kid where my water drops. And so that was, a, I, 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 the spiritual awakening I had was of that sort of an educational nature that, you know, I need to, you know, look at my, my participation in life and when something bothers me, what is it? What is it about me that is bothered? You know, to be told that when you're pointing the finger at somebody, that's three fingers pointing back at yourself. You know, I was told that in Alcoholics Anonymous by somebody who's in this meeting as well, and I had to finally accept those things. The little bit in the today, the today card that just be going around, where it says, "Just for today, you could be as happy as you want to be." And I thought that was bullshit in the beginning when all this stuff was happening to me, you know. And um, I realize now that there's, you know, there's truth in that. I am the author of my own emotions. And I, I, I got that in other places as well by reading, sort of inspirational reading where when someone says something to you and, and, and you feel offended and you, you get angry. I didn't know that you could make a choice I didn't know that you could choose not to be angry. You could leave it with the other person. I, I sometimes wish that the educational system would have taught us those things in school or even our parents, but maybe they didn't know. Or that I am, if I get angry, I'm the author of my own anger. And, and it's very, very difficult. And it sort of takes a little bit of practice to because you've only got a, a millisecond to process it and 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 be able to maybe act differently than than you would have in the old way. So sobriety. What about sobriety? I left the marriage. I um, left the job. I started a business. I started making musical instruments. Was was a bit of a passion of mine. And um, I, I was listening to the tapes of um, oh, I never remember his name. He used to say, "Follow your bliss." Uh, Joseph Campbell. I travelled in America in my early sobriety, playing playing music, playing music, you know, and getting business. And I used to listen to the, the tapes of Joseph Campbell being interviewed by Bill Myers, and I was sort of blown by the idea when he kept saying, "Follow your own bliss, follow your bliss, have the courage to 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 um to do what you want to do." And I and I tried to do that. And um, I got a new life going and had a good relationship with the kids, the two children I had, and they're all grown up now. And um, I took them to the States in my first year of sobriety, and they still remember that. We had never seen, we had never seen watermelons in San Francisco. So we got one in, we got one in San Francisco, and we cut it in the, up in the street, I had a penknife, and we had this wonderful fruit. So the lovely, the lovely um, sober experiences started happening. happening. If I if I had been kept in drinking, I'd just be dreaming dreaming on the bar stool. And I met some guys over there and we went down to Baja and for three three weeks we, we had a diving all the whole length of Baja, swimming with 
the Californian seals and seen the sea otters in the in the big macrocystis beds in California. Saw Mount St. Helens shortly after it blew up up in Seattle side. And, you know, I did a lot of traveling like that and all over the world, sobriety. One of my big one of my big my big um thrills was I held one the first Komodo dragon that was born in captivity in my hands in, in uh in Java. And those things are they're spiritual moments for me. I, I was always a very very keen biologist. I always in, in in awe of those those giant giant lizards, and to see one see one as a little baby in my hands was a magic moment. I mean, loads of those sorts of moments, and then of course the, the other ones. Then when you get cancer at thirty seven years sober, and I'm in the bed, and a relationship had just gone, and and I and I was planning plot planning my own funeral, and they were the hard times. And um, getting out of that a relationship, I had a child uh, when I was sixty-seven. She's a little garland, loving my life, and she's off in um, Greece at the moment. Just landed there with her mum today, and um, I'm glad she's having a good time. I, 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 I wouldn't, I didn't want to go with them because I don't really not comfortable with with her mother. But we have good times together, um, and just you know. She recovered from the cancer and I go to a lot of meetings. I go to meet more or less every day. And I, I don't have any any sort of lectures for anybody else. Just that's all I did. The meetings and talking to people and being open to, to change and being trying to be honest and trying to say trying to say who I am, you know. There was a little book hanging around when I was getting sober. It was written by a priest of all things, and I'm not fond of priests, but it was called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? And that was the sort of the nature of my illness. I think I was I was emotionally ill before I ever drank. There's no doubt about that. And it was of a sort of a codependent nature where I wanted to try and fix everything around me so I'd be loved. And I still have that very deep inside me. So when something's happening or if someone asks me to want to go somewhere, I have to be very careful that I check with myself before I answer. Because... I can say yes instead of no, and I can say no instead of yes sometimes. And they're the big challenges. And I remember the first time I said no to somebody in sobriety, and I was terrified. And I'll never forget the moment when I I over-explained myself then. I didn't say no, I didn't say say to this guy, no, you can't come here anymore. I don't want you coming here anymore. I started trying to explain to him why I was an alcoholic and sober. So I I, I over-explained myself hoping that he'd still like me. So now I can I can actually say no, it's a little bit easier, but it's still difficult for me. Because it's somewhere inside me, there's still that little frightened child. And uh, if I don't look at it and tell the little child, I'm okay, I'm the adult, I'm looking after you, I can make the wrong decisions. But then the program, for want of a better word, allows me to do a 10 step. And I can even ring somebody up the next day and I, I can say, I said yes to you yes, yesterday and I'm just thinking about it since I'm not comfortable with it. And I never knew that either, but I could change my mind. So I've learned those little living skills. When someone's boring the shit out of me, I'm not very good at listening to people boring me. And someone's, I, I've got little techniques saying, oh, I just remembered it to make a phone call, excuse me. Or I need to have piss, this is always a good one. At my age, that's a sort of a good excuse. But something in me wants to stay there. 
and let the person just dump, use me like a verbal sponge. I don't know where that came from, but it's still in me. And, and it can cause me all sorts of tensions. And But it, if I keep telling people who I am, I'm less likely to do it. I'm less less likely to do, you know, what they call what I call acts of spiritual suicide. Staying too long in somebody's company that doesn't suit me is an act of spiritual suicide. I could be doing something else that I'd like, like walking through the woods, eating crab apples or something, which would which would make my spirit feel better. And uh, so I can I can I I can be um abusive of myself if I'm not careful. So that's that's probably all I want to say. I had a nice day today. I had went to the meeting this morning and um, I was very tired. My my little daughter went away and um, I I always feel a little bit of a slump afterwards. I think I miss her a little bit and I know she's okay, but I feel after being with her for a few days and we were doing a lot of stuff. Um, I felt very tired today, and I allowed myself to be tired. I did some heavy work and then I have an old hot tub in the back garden and I went to the hot tub and read a, read a book and fell asleep. You know, that, I was constitutionally incapable of doing that when I came to Alexandrus. So it's wonderful that I can do those things. And you know, I'm here to, here now today and trying to tell people who I am. Um, more will be revealed. There's no doubt about that. I'm, I'm in good shape, really. A big, I, I, just, I just finished one little thing. I did a big day last week. I, um, in my sobriety, I built a boat and I traveled a lot with it. I did a solo, solo Atlantic run in the boat when I was um, yeah, 67 or 68 or something. Anyway, I haven't traveled in the boat because my little girl was born and uh, my boat went away a few days uh, last week. And it was a good relief, a big relief, really, because it was there sitting in the garden and I knew I wasn't going to use it anymore. And I had wonderful times on the boat. That, you know, it's all about experiences, really, sober experiences. And I've gone to lots of meetings in far-flung places when I was in the boat, the Faroe Islands and Iceland and places like that that I never would have got to if I wasn't uh, sober or if I didn't have the old boat. But the boat's gone and I feel relieved and new chapter in my life you now. So that's all I'm going to say. I think I've talked enough. Three quarters of an hour is, is more than I thought I'd do.